0: Hello, and welcome to The Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today is the altered states of America, the psychological effects of Donald Trump. Our guest is Dr. Seth Norholm. He is the scientific director at the Neuroscience Center for Anxiety, Stress, and Trauma at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at Wayne State University School of Medicine. For over 20 years, he has been working as a translational neuroscientist, conducting research into the neurobiological mechanisms underlying fear, anxiety, and trauma, stress-related disorders, and the accompanying psychiatric conditions in which these disorders are found. Let's welcome Dr. Seth Noholm. Welcome, Dr. Norholm.
1: Thank you. It's very good welcome. to be here today.
0: Welcome. Well, I've read um, some of your uh, writings and I find them absolutely fascinating. Um, First of all, let's tell the audience what is a translational neuroscience?
1: So a translational neuroscientist works um, better understanding mental illness and psychiatric uh, conditions in humans. And the term translational means moving from the bench in, inside a laboratory all the way to the bedside inside of a clinic. So you're really trying to understand a disorder and you're trying to understand behaviors from the level of molecules all the way to the level of behavior. And so that can mean anything from understanding, say a fear reaction in rodents or lower mammals or even insects all the way to human fear and anxiety. If you look at it from that perspective, that's what translational neuroscience is. It's looking at it from a top-down perspective and trying to understand each of those hierarchical levels along the way, uh, from individual biochemical reactions to overt behaviors.
0: And you've been doing this for over 20 years.
1: Yes, yeah, so I started this uh, several, yeah, two decades ago, first as a a grad student, and then as part of my postdoctoral training, and then moving up in the ranks academically. Uh, So I initially was working on uh, animal models of PTSD and animal models of substance use uh, with the idea of better understanding how these things develop, but also how we can treat these disorders. So I spent some time working in Uh, Drug development for methamphetamine abuse, for example, was one of my postdoctoral fellowships. Um, But really, for me, it all came back to the human condition. And so about 15 years ago, I shifted my focus to clinical work and clinical research, uh, working directly with human populations uh, that have been exposed to chronic stress, extreme trauma, Uh, I spent a good deal of that time working with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder patients and trauma victims both uh, on the civilian side and on the uh, military service member and veteran side uh, to understand human fear and anxiety. Uh, and to understand when human fear and anxiety becomes uh, pathological or when intervention needs to take place.
0: Right. And so how do you relate this to what's going on in the American psyche today uh, with the Trump administration?
1: Yeah, so the way that I've looked at this is uh, a bit of a recalibration. So uh, in my professional work before the Trump era, I would spend a lot of time working with populations that are exposed to extreme stress and trauma, uh, to help them to deal with it in terms of occupational stress. Whether it's a you know an EMT or it's a first responder, uh, law enforcement, military service member, uh, to really contextualize these fearful events they experience in terms of their overall human experience. Uh, and I say we've had to recalibrate that. Um, because we've now entered a, a socio-political climate in which fear and anxiety is heightened and the usual what we call guardrails or buffers against chronic stress and anxiety uh, are either missing or they're severely damaged. And so I really became interested in this as far as uh, you know, this particular administration because it became very clear during the candidacy that the use of fear and fear-mongering and misinterpreting potentially threatening uh, events or or groups or, or or things that might happen to people was being grossly misrepresented um, by one of the candidates. And so I really became interested in this from the, the fear and anxiety perspective, not necessarily from, a, you know, let's see uh, which candidates are in this upcoming election and who do I support. It was really because I was noticing this uptick in levels of fear and anxiety.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what do you attribute um, this fear and anxiety? Is it, is it because of what the president says? Is it because of the ongoing um, quote unquote plague um, that he has stated it is, but then lied to the American people about it? Is, is that sort of where the basis of what you're, where you're coming from is, or did it predate all this?
1: Well, the basis really comes in the fact that uh, human fear is one of those basic uh, primal emotions um, that is so powerful that when you experience a fearful response it can override what you may have learned in the past or what you may have experienced in the past so if you see for example you're you're hiking in the woods and a snake comes across the trail your your automatic response is going to be you know the fight flight or freeze response, uh, and then it may be that very quickly you see that snake you recognize that that the patterns on this snake are non venomous and you're able to tell yourself that's just a, a garden snake and it's nothing to be concerned about, and so what happens is your your higher cortical regions in your brain are shutting down the fear response. Mm-hmm. Uh, But as humans, we only have one fear response. We've got this, like I said, fight or flight response. And so we're in this unique position because we have such a developed frontal cortex and because we're able to um, play what I call the what if game. So we play out all these different scenarios in our mind about what could happen to me, what could happen to my family, how is this going to work out? And by playing that what if game and thinking about these really you know, horrible and terrible consequences can produce a fear response in you that's very similar to if there was a predator bearing down on you. So we only have this one way to respond, which is this, you know, uh, in its worst case, uh, a panic attack, but this uh, kicking in of our autonomic nervous system where our heart rate increases, we start to perspire. Um, and so we have this ability to trigger a fear response. And so whether it's our own thoughts that trigger a fear response or it's what we're experiencing in our everyday lives. And I'm specifically talking about the popular media. So it's been known for a long time that uh, fear and sex are what sell headlines or what get people to read. You know, if you put, um, what you're putting in your coffee might kill you as the tagline, you're gonna get clicks on on your website. Um, or you know lurid pictures, so there are these primal things that that can pique someone 's interest then follow that that uh, that link or that story so it 's very easy to to increase somebody 's fear response mm-hmm. um, and so what 's happened
0: th- oh, i 'm sorry do you, do you think he 's sowing that distrust and fear and anxiety purposefully or are not purposefully
1: yeah that 's uh A complicated question. Um, I think depending on the context and depending on what his objective is, uh, some of it is more uh, intentional than uh, than than other times, Um, you know, as a candidate. He was talking about refugees and all these, you know, refugees coming from places like Syria and invading, you know, communities and and really ginning up this sense of fear that outsiders were coming in. And of course, we saw that play out with the whole build the wall phenomenon. You know, I'm going to erect this 3000 mile wall to keep outsiders out and that's going to protect you and your family. Um, so that was purposely playing on people's sense of fear uh, to you know, some external event or some, you know, predatory, uh, you know, group of people that are coming to get you. In other instances, it's more vague and it's more of a, uh, you know, an allusion to something that might be fearful or scary. Um, You know, some people call these, you know, straw men or boogeymen, threats that, that are sold by the administration as being something to be concerned about, but are really not. You know, this whole idea that there's an Antifa movement is what I would call an artificial or generated threat. That, a red that has,
0: herring, so to speak.
1: A red herring is another way to put it. But uh, as we know from studying authoritarian regimes across the country, or excuse me, across the world over time, if you say something fearful enough times, the message is going to stick. Now, how many people it sticks with is going to depend on a lot of factors. But if I keep telling you what to be afraid of, and I have a very public platform like a president would Mm -hmm. or a candidate would, uh, you're going to start to hear that message um, filter down into the populace. Um, So I've, I've been telling people, you know, I would really like to, and, and, not to be a a provocateur or not to cause problems but really to to go around say my neighborhood or go around the state of michigan where i am now uh, and talk to trump supporters and say what is it about uh this president that appeals to you Mm -hmm. and you're going to get a wide range of responses everything from i have something financially to gain from him being president You may even get people who are honest enough to say, you know what, I don't like a particular type of people, neither does he, so he's my candidate. You know, overt racism, uh, you know, bias. Um, But you're also going to get people that are going to recite that message that they've heard through the popular media, Fox News. Mm -hmm. um, And if you were to press them enough on that belief, you would see that there's not a whole lot behind it.
0: So repetition really kind of seals the deal is what you're saying. If you repeat something often enough, even if it's not true, it becomes adopted as true. Is is that correct?
1: Yes. You have two factors at play. The first one is repetition. So as a person with a public uh, presence and bullhorn, I'm going to spread this message. Now what you would hope or what rational um, people would hope is that there's going to be a counter voice that, or, or counter evidence that says, you know, that that's not necessarily true. Or, or that message is, is really being, it's hyperbolic, it's oversold. Mm-hmm. But what we're finding more often than not is there's a complicity and an enabling in that the claim is made and repeated from the top over and over. And then it's echoed by, Fox News, the press secretary, mm-hmm. members of the cabinet, members of Congress. Yeah, let's so, talk
0: about that enabling. Uh, I, I, there's so much of that enabling going on. It's just I've never seen it in another administration, from from the, every aspect of the administration, from and Congress as well. Right. Yeah. So, w- what do you think? Why do you think uh, these people are enabling him so much? Is it personal gain? Is it uh, philosophy? Uh, what do you think really is at the crux of all this?
1: Yes, I think it's it's all of those. So I think it's it's for a variety of reasons. Again, depending on you know who the enabler is, um, some it's quite simply shared ideology and, and shared philosophy. Um, you know, somebody who believes that. Um, you know, like a Bill Barr who believes that the president has much greater authority than has been shown in the past or that he has used in the past. Uh, So there's a shared ideology. Some of it is self-preservation, whether that's career self-preservation or because you are vulnerable legally or vulnerable financially, that you need this alliance with this person uh, in order to prevent, you know, harmful consequences, be it you know, financial ruin or uh, going through the the uh, criminal justice system, um, and some of it is you know, and we learn a lot of this from from cult psychology. Is um, there are people who are vulnerable to suggestion and vulnerable to a political message, and some of that is because, as human beings, you know, we know over the the course of our history that we're social creatures that we tend to mass together into groups. And the sense of belonging, you know, centuries ago, Mm -hmm. served a survival purpose, because if you could depend on others then you were more likely to survive. Um, But, you know, you hear this term tribalism a lot. Yes, you do. That term tribalism has its roots in groups that lived and coexisted together to promote the survival of one another. And now it's, you know, taken on a different political spin, But the idea, again, is I'm going to defend our group to extreme ends in order to maintain that membership. And so what I tell my students is I could, on day one of class, say this half of the class is going to wear red shirts and this half of the class is going to wear blue shirts. And it wouldn't take a whole lot for me by the end of that first week, by the end of that first month, to have animosity between the red shirts and the blue shirts, even though I've done nothing except put a label on each of those groups. And so you've certainly seen that with authoritarian regimes in the past. There was a a movie and a book in the 70s called The Wave where a a high school teacher actually did this social experiment. um, And he demonstrated to his students how Nazism came to be, at least ideologically, how that spread from one person to the other so we have this tribalism um, nature to us that we will defend
0: now on, on that same vein I wanted to delve into the cult aspect because uh, Michael Cohen has written a book the mm-hmm. former uh, the former uh, attorney to uh, Donald Trump he's written a book and he talks about the cult um, but how is he similar and how is he different from my understanding of cults the the leader usually tries to um i mean he can also tell them to drink the kool-aid literally but uh, they usually try to appeal to some caring and taking care of those people do you see that here or not
1: the you see some similarities and you see some differences some of the similarities are The appeal to a large number of people, um, this idea of loyalty. um, You know, we've heard from countless accounts, whether it was Andrew McCabe or uh, Jim Comey, or, you know, this idea of there being a loyalty pledge. Mm -hmm. So, initially setting up this dynamic where I am the leader of this group, now in, in the political case, it's this administration, which, you know, took office in 2017 and those members of the group defer to me as the leader unquestionably. Now, as we saw, some people like you know Sally Yates and, and others spoke up against that idea of a loyalty pledge, but that's where we see some similarities. This idea that you pledge loyalty to a leader with the idea being that that leader is going to bring you to some ends, is going to do something for you that was unattainable before. What's different about this is that in the past, Cult leaders have been successful by saying things like, nobody loves you or nobody cares about you like I do. Nobody can show you this higher sense of enlightenment or taking you to whatever promised land is off in the distance that you can get to through this cult leader following. You don't see that here. You don't see, I care about you more than other people do. Now, you see some lip service to it during the rallies, you know, um, there is some talk of him calling the, the, the rally attendees the elite, whatever that means,
0: Right. Uh, but this it's, idea
1: that you are special because you're here with me. So there's some of that, but you don't see this over caring and love. And in fact, what we found out just in the past few days is that his feelings are quite the opposite. You know, he said, there may be a silver lining to this COVID. I don't have to shake hands with these disgusting people. Right. The disgusting people are the people that are clapping hands and wearing his name on their shirts at those rallies.
0: Well, this is the part that I, I, I have trouble understanding. If he wants these people to vote for him, um, why didn't he tell them in the beginning to protect themselves from COVID? Instead, he's allowing them to mill about in his own rallies, exposing them. Right. I mean, how, I just don't understand the logic. How come he doesn't want to protect them so they can make sure that they can go and vote for him? I find that right. illogical.
1: It is illogical, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the, um, you know, the the severe narcissist that that he is that is in in the Oval Office right now.
0: Um, Let's talk about that. What yeah, is a severe narcissist?
1: So you can look at narcissism on a continuum. Everybody has a degree of narcissism, and the way that begins is because when we are born and we are toddlers, developing through our early life, we are the center of of the universe as we perceive it. You know, we see people come in and out of our lives and they're coming in and out of our lives to do something for us. They're nourishing us, giving us care. So from our perspective at a young age, we are the center of the universe.
0: And that is the toddler. toddler That's the
1: toddler stage, yes. And then you learn as you get older and as you mature emotionally and physically, that, oh, I'm not the only person in the world. I'm actually part of a larger society and I play a role in this, that, and the other. So emotional development is the idea that this narcissism that generates very early uh, sort of you know, fades away and, 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 and you are more of an interactive person. Now,
0: So it's a developmental continuum.
1: It's a developmental continuum in that you start out narcissistic based on how we develop. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have a, a continuum of narcissism in terms of people's personality. You know, I would mm-hmm. make the argument that anybody who is running for president has some degree of narcissism in that they think that they have the ability to exact change on a large number of people in a very large country with a severe a sphere of influence around the world. You have to have some degree of narcissism in order to pull that off. Uh, what happens is you go down that continuum and the narcissism goes from being what we call quote unquote healthy narcissism, which can be, you know, the narcissism that drives you to succeed, that drives you to uh, do well and, and and pursue excellence. But then it becomes what we call malignant narcissism when it becomes dangerous, when it becomes malevolent, when you're achieving goals, there's a Machiavellianism to it, when you're starting to do things to achieve uh, your own personal goals or the goals of your group at the expense of other people. Mm-hmm. And so superimposed on that narcissism continuum is also this continuum that goes from uh, empathy to sociopathy to psychopathy. So, you know, the the general public has a degree of empathy. They see a sad story on the news, they're going to react to it. They see a puppy in the store, they're going to have a reaction to it. As As a In general, you have a response when something emotionally generating, whether it's happy or sad, uh, occurs in another person. Um, So you have empathy. But then as you move towards these maladaptive, when you get into sociopathy, that's a a lack of empathy towards other people. You know, Mm -hmm. we talk about antisocial personality disorder that's acting in ways that are by definition against society, against the norms that could hurt other people. When you get into psychopathy, then you're talking about sadism. So not only are you talking about having a lack of empathy, but this is actually deriving pleasure from someone else being hurt. And I'll use a very quick example that just happened over the weekend. Um, So during one of the rallies, the president said uh, that Ali Velshi of CNN, it's actually MSNBC, but Ali Velshi of CNN was hit by a rubber bullet and it was a beautiful thing to see. That's law and order. So to unpack that, he's expressing pleasure at another human being being harmed. Um, He's claiming it under law and order. Now, the law that Ali Velshi appears to have broken is criticizing Trump, not anything that has to do with our legal system or our system of government. The law and order that he broke is speaking out against Trump. Um, So you see this this sadism, this this deriving pleasure from others getting hurt. Um, And... You see it in quite a number of the policies, you know, the, uh, the policy of separating children from their families at the border as a deterrent, you know, that is sadistic in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a lot of examples, but yeah. It's...
0: Yeah, but his, his, his followers think uh, he's just trying to uh, keep them safe. He's trying to protect them from all these uh, unwanted intruders. Remember, the Mexicans are going to come and, right. and kill them all.
1: Yeah, and, and there's a counter argument that, that continues to need to be suppressed because he also said this thing was a hoax. And now you're seeing people like uh, Herman Cain, uh, you're seeing people like the state senator in Tennessee, who is very much an anti-COVID, a very outspoken person, Um, who succumbed to COVID-related complications.
0: As did Um, Herman Cain, he passed away.
1: Right, right. And what you're seeing now is trying to change that narrative so that there's even an argument now about what a COVID-related death is. And so if somebody had pre-existing asthma and then contracted COVID and died because of some respiratory complication, there are people arguing that they didn't die of COVID. Well, if they managed the asthma and lived for you know 36 years and then contracted the illness, then it was COVID that ultimately took their life. But anyway, um, so what you're getting is, it, to get back to your point is, uh, and I used this term earlier in the conversation, it's this recalibration. So first it was a hoax. Okay, it's not a hoax, but- It was a democratic hoax, remember? It was a democratic, it was a democratic hoax. Um, it's not worse than the flu. Uh, 15 people have it. Soon it'll be down to zero. And um, so now we're at the point where last week, uh, I think the statement was, we're doing pretty well if you don't count the blue states. So now we're, we're writing off an entire population of human beings who have succumbed to this illness to, to fit this narrative that's been put forward, that this is not something to worry about and that this is a hoax and um, well, no. he did
0: call it the plague when he spoke to uh, Bob Woodward. He did it him. Yeah. And the, my curiosity is, why did he admit it to Bob Woodward? Why did he do
1: that? Right. I'll tell you why he did that. Because he's a severe narcissist. And he knows who Bob Woodward is. So he has he's access- famous author who's talked to several presidents at length. So he's got a long standing understanding of the presidency and the people who have occupied that office. So I am talking to Bob Woodward, you know, he even made the comments to Melania, you know, off the phone that he was talking to Bob Woodward. So. The reality show host, the person that craves the fame and the adulation has to let it know, be known that he's talking to Bob Woodward. But now he's in a position where he's the president. So he has access to intelligence. He has access to classified information. It, it, long story short, I know something you don't know. So when you listen to that exchange with Bob Woodward about the plague, he's telling Bob Woodward, I know about this thing to a degree that you don't even know about. And so it's a bit of a, a, a brag. A uh, superiority to put it thing. It's a superiority thing. It's a brag. It's saying, I know more than Bob Woodward in this moment and taking glee in that. Um, so, you, you know, you and I talked uh, last week off camera um, about this, this idea of, of the lying, does he believe the lying or is it intentional lying? Right. And, and, and the answer is it's, it's, it's a mix between the two. There are some lies that are, are intentional and strategic and meant to serve a certain purpose. There are other lies that are meant to maintain the public persona, the public veneer of successful businessman turned president of the United States, turned you know savior of this group of people. Um, but he has to look at the lies as to how vulnerable they make him. So if you were to be called out for the lie, and he has been by some small number of journalists and by uh, some you know, ex-members of his administration, uh, how vulnerable does this lie make me? Uh, Because he's operating oftentimes based strictly on his emotions in that moment. So if you remember when he was back at the CDC in March and he said, anybody who wants a test will get a test.
0: Right. That was
1: was a lie in the moment to get out of a difficult situation.
0: I don't think he even knew. I don't think he even knew. I think he just said it. Right.
1: He just said it because he knew that he was in danger. Again, I'm not saying at an intellectual level, at an emotional level, he was in danger and had to get out of that moment. So we've seen time and time again, him chasing that moment where he's made these statements. Everybody who wants a test can get a test. These fires are going to go away. This illness is going to go away. So uh, There's no you know, climate change. Yeah, c- denying climate change. And and to, to talk a little bit about the the psychological abuse side of it, uh, the victim shaming, you know, instead of acknowledging climate change and saying we've got to do a better job in California, in Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest, um, you got to take better care of your forests. You people aren't doing your jobs. You're not raking
0: the leaves or whatever it is. It's the
1: fault of the, the Democratic leadership, you know, so that's called victim shaming and that's abusive. And that's something that we've as mental health professionals have talked a lot about with this dynamic that exists right now between the majority of the American people and their leader.
0: But ironically, most of those lands are federal government owned. So if any right. victim should be shamed, it should be himself and his administration. Right.
1: But if I don't think, would... I don't think he understands that at all. He doesn't have that level of understanding of the presidency, the federal government. It doesn't even dawn on him that this is ultimately uh his responsibility and if he did he would immediately shift that responsibility as we've seen with you know it's up to the states to handle this pandemic uh you know when asked directly by the press do you find yourself accountable i take no responsibility at all and so you asked me earlier about what a severe narcissist is a severe narcissist takes no responsibility at all they cannot accept fault or blame uh, of any kind
0: do these people even have the ability to even love their own family members, these kind of severe narcissists? He's been it's, married um, several times, so I'm wondering.
1: Right. It's it's not love in the sense that, that you and I would think about love. It's not love in the sense of caring for another person. Uh, it's transactional. If a relationship serves a purpose and there's an exchange of, uh, you know, oftentimes it's money to be gained, um, fame, power, Uh, if if that family member can provide that to me, uh, then they are of value. So it's not necessarily love as much as it is this person is of value to me. Um, And oftentimes the relationships will be uh, dictated and delineated by that transactional manner. And in the point that it can switch just like that as soon as the value is gone. And we've seen that even with a Michael Cohen, you know, three, four years ago, Michael Cohen was, you know, Trump's right-hand man, his fixer. He was in the inner circle and now excommunicated because he's disloyal because he no longer uh, can provide positivity or positive results from that transaction.
0: Now, let's talk a little bit about projection and how he projects onto other people in different ways about, you know, uh, what he, what his inner feelings might be and how he attributes them to someone else, some um, ill motive.
1: Right. So yeah, projection is a defense mechanism that's been discussed in psychology for, you know, decades now. And it's, you know, to put it simply, accusing others um, for that of which you are guilty. Uh, and it's a defense mechanism, mechanism that protects the ego. So a severe narcissist has to protect the ego. Uh, so you'll oftentimes uh, see public statements or hear public statements or see, tw- you know, tweets to the degree of, um, you know, Barack Obama was a traitor. Uh, they spied on our campaign. Um, you know, even in real time during the debates with Hillary Clinton, when she said he was a Russian puppet, he said, no, you're the puppet. So you see this projection in real time uh, in a nonsensical way and in a lot of ways, in, Childish. In, in, an immature way. So we talked before about how, you know, narcissism can be a, a delay in, in emotional development. Um, you see very childlike responses, the name calling, um, you know, it, Senator the,
0: McCain wasn't a hero,
1: wasn't a hero. Yeah. So to talk about the severe narcissism again for just a second, because you can, if you, if you watch, if you can sit through these uh, press conferences and these uh, interactions, um, you think about this baseline that Trump is coming from. Okay. So we know from our own observations of him, but also from what's available publicly, Uh, that he doesn't have a whole lot of experience in a whole lot of disciplines, right? Not a whole lot of world experience, not a lot of experience in different career fields or academic areas. And so that's a shortcoming. So if this is his baseline where he's coming from, which is, uh, you know, being in in Trump Tower, running the Trump organization with his family, uh, with not much intellectual curiosity, and not much uh, interest in reading or getting to know the perspective of other people. Um, so what happens is, for example, when he's at the CDC uh, back in March, and he makes the statement that uh, I have a knack for this sort of thing. You know, these doctors in the room were impressed. I know better than the doctors. I know better than the doctors. So what he's doing in that situation is here's his baseline. He's artificially putting himself up here. Um, You saw the same thing with, uh, I know more than the generals. So this is a five-time draft dodger who never served in the military, but has to put himself on equal footing with the generals. So he artificially inflates himself, I know more than the generals. The other thing that he does is, if again you think about this baseline, is he'll bring other people down to his level. And so he'll denigrate people with the name-calling, with the, oh, that person is just a, a hack, or, a, you know, he likes to use the terms winners and losers. Um, you know, right, he even said that
0: those that served in the military... Right. Losers.
1: right. So those that gave the ultimate sacrifice that served their country, which most Americans and most people in general would put up here in this echelon of people who would come close to what we in psychology called self actualization, where you've done some good for the world, made an impact, but to take that and bring it back down and say, no, no, they're losers. You know, to get back to what you were saying about projection, they're losers just like me. So he either has to put himself up there, you know, through grandiose statements or through, uh, you know, calling the media as David Denison or, or one of his, uh, you know, uh, alter egos uh, to build himself up or bring those people down. Because at some level, even though he lives in a distorted reality, at some level, he knows that he doesn't match up. So he's when very he
0: insecure. Very uh, insecure. Uh, and yes. we all know he's the bully in the schoolyard and bullies are usually yes. the most insecure of all.
1: Yes. Yeah. And And as much as he you know, plays that bully, uh, there, are, there are instances where the bully veneer has been dropped and you've seen the insecurity for what it is. Uh, I'll bring up a couple examples. One is uh, in Helsinki when people, a lot of people's opinions changed about him after Helsinki when he had Putin right next to him and he took Putin's word over the intelligence committees and agencies you saw body language and facial expressions in him that were pure weakness. They were pure submissiveness. There was very little of that grandiosity, I know more than Putin. You, we've never heard that statement. Uh, but if you go back and watch that video or look at the still images from Helsinki, you're seeing a bully who's been called out, who recognizes that there is somebody else who is that he is subservient to. We, do, we still... 4 years later don't know why that is we have some inklings but there is a reverence to Putin that makes the bully become the bullied
0: and what and, about kim jong un how do you see that with him
1: and the, yeah with kim jong un it's uh it's an admiration for the leadership style that enables one to rule without accountability and without uh, any question. So for somebody who is an insecure narcissist who needs to be protected, uh, that type of leadership style works. You are the leader and it is not questioned. And if it is questioned, it's a capital offense. So there is a, a, an envy and an admiration of Kim Jong-un because he rests that control over the, his country to the degree where they have this uh reverence to him in some degree. Well, Kim
0: Jong-un was born into it, sort of like he was born into the real estate. Right.
1: uh, So when we've done historical analyses of, of dictators and authoritarians, you've seen some examples where they were part of the resistance or the rebellion Uh, in their country, and they ultimately led a cause. And by leading that cause, they came into a position of power. So they brought supporters with them based on a body of work. Um, What you're seeing with with Trump and with Kim, the Kim dynasty had already been in place for decades before Kim Jong-un came along and had already been through propaganda and through just maintaining that that leadership uh, that, whoever it was, and and a lot of people don't know that Kim Jong-un has siblings and he was not the first in line to succeed his father, Kim Jong-il. It just turns out that there were qualities about the others who could have taken the place that Kim Jong-il did not want because they would go against the dynastic qualities that that he was looking for.
0: Well, Mary Trump wrote about that in her book about the same thing with her father, Fred, how he was the oldest and he would have taken the place. But he didn't have those characteristics. And Donald saw what the father wanted and emulated that.
1: Right. And so that that plays into it. And and it plays into the underlying psychology of place and that there is this, uh, this forever, you know, inborn need to please the parents. (laughs) And, you know, you can see it in in terms of authoritarian leaders and, and family dynasties. Uh, all the way into what we were talking about a few minutes ago with, with cult psychology. You know, a lot of cult leaders take on a parental role. Uh, a lot of presidents are seen in a parental role. Uh, so some of that loyalty we talked about a few minutes ago is, you know, the president is the parent of our country and I need to please the parent. And that that's why I think the abusive relationship analogy works so well. Uh, and the dynamic works so well between the majority of Americans and this president, because it is a a parental uh, uh, mismanagement. It is a dysfunctional relationship.
0: And as for the abusive relationship, uh, as you had mentioned before, it's it's akin to uh, a domestic abuser saying, "I have the revolver under my pillow," right, and he having the nuclear codes,
1: right. So there, you know, one of the questions is why, why does he have such a, a high percentage of followers or supporters? Uh, why haven't more people spoken out against him? Uh, and, and the reality is, is that because he is the president, he has access to all kinds of resources, which uh, includes our vast military arsenal, which includes nuclear weapons. So there is a, a hesitance in a lot of people to push too far because they simply don't know how he's gonna react. They simply don't know he's that unpredictable. You know, we've already heard from a number of credible sources inside the White House that he tends to um, have these displays of rage. He tends to lay into people. He tends to, um, you know, again, in that abusive relationship kind of phenomenon, he, he verbally abuses or chastises whoever the, the victim is of that day for doing whatever wrong it was uh, that day. So the question has always been, how far would he take that? Is it going to be a verbal tongue lashing and a public embarrassment that we've seen um, over the airwaves and on Twitter? Or is there actually going to be you know, something much more substantial? Um, which brings us back to the situation that we're in now with the COVID-19 where the question remains is how much of this was incompetence, how much of this was negligence, and how much of this was intentional. And, you know, if we knew what he knew in February, that this was a lethal virus that had the potential to kill hundreds of thousands, uh, there's a responsibility there um, to, get the word out and to begin preparations and to prepare the American people. And that wasn't done. And at some point you have to stop saying that wasn't done because he's inexperienced. He's incompetent. You know, he didn't understand the workings of the federal government and all of the agencies that need to be involved in a response to wait a second, you know, we're hearing revelations. now that, uh, it's New York city and they, they're not, they're not my people. They're not yeah, my they're voters. Blue state, they're right. a blue state. Yeah.
0: And they have to remind him you're president of all the states.
1: Right. And so that's a great point because when he says red states and blue states, you forget that those labels are based on electoral college results. Those are based on, on voting patterns. It's not the populace. So he's writing off, his supporters whose homes are burning in California. He's writing off, as we talked about a few minutes ago, his supporters who are dying of COVID. By putting them in these buckets of red versus blue states, you know, we talked a few minutes ago about physical abuse and emotional abuse. You know, that is a form of, of abuse. If you're putting people at risk, knowingly, uh, that that is abusive. Uh, and I think that 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 is getting... Um, lost in a lot of these discussions that we're having, you know, to write off uh, the state of California as a blue state, which, as we know, California is heterogeneous. California has certainly its, you know, large number of of Republicans. Um, And we know that, you know, California is one of the largest economies in the world. So for that to be written off because, you know, they're a blue state or they're not Trump's people, it's so short, short-sighted and narrow-minded uh, it, it, that it it really speaks to this severe narcissism we right. talked about.
0: I and mean, even the governor of New York had said, we put more in the bucket, the government right, right. bucket financially. We're a blue state, but right. we put more in and like other states are taking what we put in out. And many of those are the quote-unquote red states. Right. So there needs to be some, you know, mutuality of appreciation as a president for all the states and all the people. But how do you see people? I, I've i seen many people, they look very depressed. They seem agitated all the time. Um, they feel that, you know, we're never going to get out of this mess. And now Trump is actually talking about he's entitled to a third term, even if he wins a second term. I, this is like... Totally unprecedented. We, that's why we have this 22nd Amendment, so that presidents cannot continue on and, and we don't get a dictatorship and we don't have this perpetuity going on. What do you say to these people that are experiencing all this?
1: Yeah, so what we're, we're talking about um, is a few groups of people. And I don't mean a few groups in terms of, you know, we're talking about millions of people in each group. Um, But you have those individuals who were dealing with fear, anxiety, depression, substance use um, before this four-year period of time, um, whose symptoms are becoming exacerbated and getting worse. Uh, So there's that cohort of of clients and patients that we're concerned about. Then there's the, quote-unquote, newly traumatized, who maybe we're in Puerto Rico when Maria hit or in Houston uh, when Dorian hit or, uh, you know, I forget which hurricane it was that hit Houston. Um, but so anyway, many. my point is um, that they, they, they tend to, to become traumatized by the events of the day. So whether it's uh, first responders, whether it's ER docs in, in, the five boroughs of New York uh, back in April who were seeing death on a scale that they probably hadn't seen before, um, you know, newly traumatized individuals specifically based on events that occurred during this administration.
0: Well, the COVID, COVID is, is like, I think is one of the biggest ones. People are losing yeah. their jobs and the fires, they're losing their homes. And, you know, groceries or even you can can go to the grocery store and half the things aren't even there, you know, some of the time. I don't think Americans have seen this. This is sort of unprecedented.
1: It's unprecedented in in large part because if we dealt with a a national crisis before, um, A, there was usually a a figurehead, likely the president, who came out and said, this is a national crisis. We're going to get through this and whatever... Um, And this is what we
0: need to do.
1: Yeah, this is what we need to do. And whatever, you know, presidential, um, you know, pep talk needed to be given is, you know, we're going to come out stronger after this, whatever it may be. Uh, So you get that national message that recognizes the crisis and says we're going to deal with it. We didn't have that this time. The other thing that buffers us against traumatic events and chronic stress is our support system. And that support system includes the resources we have. So that's jobs, that's food, that's housing. Um, and it's the people that we interact with. It's Which our friends and short family. Which is
0: all supply now with COVID.
1: Right. So now with COVID you're seeing shortages in food insecurity, you're seeing job loss and financial instability, and people are physically separated from their support system. You know, you and I are talking by Zoom, much as many people are interacting via Zoom these days. Um, And the question will be for us as, as scientists and as researchers is, can these digital interactions not only meet, but can they surpass what we know about physical relationships and face-to-face interactions with other people. Uh, so I continue to be a proponent of uh, seeking out your social support system in times of fear and anxiety. So having family Zoom calls, um, you know, or having just voice calls on the phone, FaceTime with your, your iPhone, they're all going to be buffers uh, against, you know, the effects of stress and anxiety. Um, but and we've talked about this, uh, the interaction between the economy and recovering from COVID, both from the disease itself and from its mental health outcomes, uh, they're interrelated. And so until and so the underlying cause, which is stemming the spread of this disease and getting infrastructure back to where it was, you know, for the time being, you know, we're going to have to find other support systems and and, and buffers. Um, and that's why I've, I've said several uh, conversations and interviews over the last few weeks that this is going to be a long-standing, you know, public health, uh, mental health crisis because uh, a lot of the infrastructure that had in place before isn't there or needs to be rebuilt. Um, and, and so we talked about, um, you know, this fear and anxiety that people have, the other thing is, is this administration that has specifically targeted health care, has specifically targeted insurance coverage. It's one thing to have the wherewithal and the intrinsic properties and traits to say, I can deal with this illness, but then to not have the resources, access to medical care to deal with it, then however strongly you feel against your diagnosis or your Parkinson's diagnosis, if you don't, or your COVID diagnosis, if you don't have access to care, then that only goes so far.
0: Well, they're already in court fighting about Obamacare. And one of the major issues on the court now with Ruth Bader Ginsburg gone, is what will happen with uh, any rulings because um, if it is a tie, it goes back to what the lower court held. Right. So I cannot imagine why someone would want to take away insurance during a deadly pandemic i do not understand that It it seems like he's trying to punish the very country that he's supposed to be right. taken care of Yeah, perhaps it goes of that, back to his childhood i don't know
1: some of that is what we spoke about earlier you know he has said in the past week I'm going to protect pre-existing conditions and have good health care. And he's, you know, I forget who it was, but he's made this two-week promise for his care plan for two years now, uh, where we're going to roll out this great health care plan. It's a baseless lie meant to appease whoever it is he's speaking to in that moment. Uh, but there's no real behind it. Um, and you know, for those that have been brave enough to to call in real time. You know, when he said, I'm going to protect your pre-existing conditions and you're going to have access to health he's been reminded that, by the way, you know, your administration is in court right now trying to strike this down. Uh, so some of that is uh, his his uh, inability to come in the, 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 the wheels of the federal government and to understand all of them, that the multifaceted role that he plays and, and that, you know, what he says in the moment does not comport with how this government is supposed to work. Um, but I just want to touch on one that, that has come you know, because of the events of this past weekend. Um, you know, I had made the analogy as you alluded to a few minutes ago about you know this is a officer who has access to deadly weapons and, and reminds us of that. And that can prevent the abuse from speaking out or having some sense of agency against the abuse. Um, You know, when the Mueller investigation came out and it was largely diluted by Bill Barr and the consequences were minimal, if any, uh, when the impeachment um, proceedings went through and, you know, the GOP did not convict, um, you know, I said the feelings that many people were feeling, the, the, the dejection, the sadness, the anger, the anxiety was um, into the police coming to the door and confronting the abuser and then not doing and getting back in their car and, and the abused victim looking out the window and watching the police pull away uh, as that sense of hope is lost. Well, I from, right. he said I yeah, can walk I down 5th Ave. He said I can walk down
0: 5th Ave and kill somebody and nothing's going right. to
1: happen. Yeah, so there's a the lack of consequences uh, that it, that. Uh, is parallel with an abusive relationship, but um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to a lot of people, so especially you know women, represented a beacon of hope, represented a guardrail, represented a voice against the abuser, uh, and that was lost. And so I don't know how many messages I got uh, Friday night that were you know messages of of dejection, sadness. Um, some of that was because of who she was in, you know, as a person, as a legal scholar, as a, uh, you know, my daughter was Ruth Bader Ginsburg for Halloween one year. I mean, she was inspiration. So there was the, yeah. the sense of loss at an icon, but there was also this loss at a, a again, another guardrail, another mm. voice of dissent. So, you know, I, I think I, I tweeted out something along the lines of "Tonight or tomorrow we act," and and you know that advice still holds true whether it's the pre-Trump era, the within-Trump era, and the post-Trump era is recognize and acknowledge your feeling and make a plan to do something about it. Right. You know? so we're right. We're going to uh, encourage her to, um, you know, if we're not going to vote for Joe. It, it, you know if we're not going to vote for biden harris um exercise your right to vote for ruth bensburg you know right um, turn these emotions into something positive
0: right right well you know i i'm just praying that uh righteousness will prevail and the you know we see it's to me it's quite clear you know we have a person who lies and deceives the american people and we have someone who does not so to me it seems like a clear choice but again you know uh it's up to the american people but we're all in this together and we're all feeling the effects of it i think the world is feeling the effects of it and i just don't know how long this is all going to last Well, anyways, um, I thank you for your insights. I thank you for all this information. Um, I think it lays it out for people um, to see the evolution of, of the psychological elements here. And, you know, whether he was born this way or he evolved this way or a number of factors, we don't know. But the American people are the recipients of it. And I. Truly do believe this will have long-lasting effects if it continues.
1: Right. Yes.
0: Thank I you, Dr. Noholm. Thank you thank so you much. For your time. Thank you for yeah. being with us. Sure. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Seth Noholm, for sharing his research and opinions on the psychology of abuse and abnormal behavior. And I want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And don't forget, subscribe online, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.